From WSCFM and HD1 Columbia, I'm Morjalis. And I'm Erin Slowey. This is Localized from WUSC News. Against all expectations, the University of South Carolina has made it to the end of the semester without a COVID-related shutdown. Faculty Senate Chair Mark Cooper is here to tell us what the administration has learned from the past few months and how that's impacted plans for the spring. Also, with COVID infection rates skyrocketing across the country, many are wondering if another lockdown is on the horizon. News of a possible vaccine has some feeling hopeful, but how long do we have to wait for public access? Here to discuss is epidemiologist Dr. Miriam Torres. All that more coming up on Localize. The news is first. Live from WSC News, I'm Tyler Fedor. Instead of having to drive an hour or two now to the nearest Apple store, USC students will now have to look no further than the horseshoe for any Apple tech-related issues. WSC's Abigail Brandon reports. The U of SC Board of Trustees announced today that an Apple store will be coming to campus soon. They hope to have it finished and ready by next year. It will only be open to students, faculty, and staff, and will be the only Apple store within an hour of Columbia. The College of Hospitality, Retail, and Sports Management will run the store, and students in the college will get hands-on experience in retail. The store will be called the iCarolina Tech Hub, have five technicians to repair Apple products, and will be located in the Burns Building next to the University Tech Zone. With WUSC News... I'm Abigail Brandon. The coronavirus is surging across the nation, and South Carolina is no exception as the state battles its own rise in cases. WSC's Finn Carlin reports. The South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control reported roughly 1,240 new COVID cases on Thursday, up from 987 the day before. The increase in positive cases in the state has led to the highest seven-day moving average since August, with roughly 1,200 new cases per day. The percent positive on Thursday was about 14.4%, which SCD-HEC says should have been around 5% or lower. Hospitalizations from COVID-related symptoms in the state reached around 810 as of Thursday, and about eight new deaths were reported on the same day. This update comes after Columbia recently strengthened its mask ordinance, raising fines to $100 and requiring that face coverings be worn in all public places, now being strictly enforced. Fire Chief Aubrey Jenkins says that for a while, no citations were being given, but the local law enforcement is doing it now. Finn Carlin, WSC News, Columbia. While the election has been called for now presidential-elect Joe Biden, some states are just now calling the victors of their electoral votes. WSC's Cadence Tomlinson reports. CNN projected earlier today that President-elect Joe Biden has won the state of Georgia, making him the very first Democrat to win the state in 28 years, ever since Bill Clinton in 1992. This adds 16 electoral votes to Biden's electoral tally, putting him at exactly 306 electoral votes. CNN also projects that President Trump will win in North Carolina. With North Carolina's 15 electoral votes, this puts the final tally at 306 for Joe Biden and 232 for Donald Trump. This electoral victory matches Donald Trump's in 2016, who won over Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College by the exact same margin. There is one key difference to note, however. 2020 President-elect Joe Biden is projected to win the popular vote by over 5 million votes, which was not the case for President Trump when he won in 2016. Cadence Tomlinson, WUSC News. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 399 points today. The Nasdaq rose 119 points, and the S&P 500 rose 48 points. It's currently 72 degrees outside with a low of 52 tonight. 
I for tomorrow is 70 degrees with a low of 55. I'm Tyler Fedor, and you're listening to WSC News. It's 6.04. He would come home after a hard day and just start in on me, you know, like, hey, how was your day? How was school? What you got going on? I mean, it gave me the chills. My father would drive me all the way to the mall. He wouldn't stop until we were right in front of my friends. And oh my God, when... I wanted to go to Europe, and he seriously made me get a job to pay for it. And that one time... He insisted on taking us to the movies, even though he knew Stephen totally worked there and I was totally in love with him. And the time I got this wicked cool scorpion tattoo on my shoulder, not even the whole arm, just the shoulder, and he grounded me for two weeks. Two weeks! And oh yeah. When I wanted to major in ceramics, because I'm like way good at it, my dad told me I'd have to pay my own tuition. Like, duh. How am I supposed to earn that kind of dough-making pottery? Embarrass them. Horrify them. Freak them out. Don't worry. They'll appreciate it. Eventually. A message from the National Fatherhood Initiative and the Ad Council. Have you been a dad today? For more information, visit fatherhood.org. This neighborhood has changed a lot since I was told I wasn't welcome here. But now the Fair Housing Act makes it illegal to discriminate in the renting or selling of a home because of race, color, religion, sex, national origin, familial status, or disability. <laughs> if you believe you have been discriminated against, contact HUD at 1-800-669-9777. What's up, Gamecocks? It's Schuler from Death Drive 90.5. We're all stoked to be back on campus. But we've got to remember that the threat of COVID-19 is still very real and very present. Take measures to protect those around you and to protect yourself. Wear that mask. Wash your hands. Stay six feet apart. Don't eat anything that you find on the ground. Stop licking doorknobs. Let's all work together for a COVID-free campus. Because riffs should be sick. You shouldn't. Keep it healthy, keep it safe, and keep it locked to 90.5. WUSC FM and HD1 Columbia. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to Localize from WSC News. I'm Erin Slowey. As USC wraps up its first semester after the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, the university has started sharing its plans for the spring. At a town hall earlier this month, university officials announced that students can expect a lot of the same next semester. Some classes in person, some online, some of a mix of both. The university has also announced a new plan of breaks throughout the semester. Here to discuss those and other plans for the spring is Faculty Senate Chair and English Professor Mark Cooper. Dr. Cooper, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. I'm a college radio veteran myself, so it's super great to be here. Yeah, that's great. So to start off, preparation for the fall semester involved months and months of meetings to discuss how the coronavirus was going to impact the classroom. What have the conversations been like for this next semester? What can students expect? 
So we've been having some of the same kinds of meetings. It's not starting from zero, of course. Uh, over the summer, a number of faculty senate committees, faculty welfare committees, standards and petitions committee worked with officials throughout campus to develop COVID in the classroom guidance for faculty. And we'll refresh that guidance right after Thanksgiving. So it'll be in place for the spring. So some of the same kinds of things, but not quite such a heavy lift because we've kind of done it once. Yeah. So in the spring, I, rem I remember filling out a survey about the type of mode of instruction that students would prefer for the fall semester. The results were overwhelmingly in favor of in-person instruction, but I know, at least in some of my classes, the number of students who attend in person has dwindled since the beginning of the semester. Why do you think that is, and has that changed the faculty's approach for planning for next semester? I think it'll probably change our advice in a couple different ways. Uh, that's been my experience as well. You know, I, I know that some of my students have needed, I'm teaching hybrid class. I know some of my students have needed reasonable accommodations for quarantine and isolation. And that's kind of why our policies were there. I also noticed that attendance goes down when it rains um, and the preference for, for online class delivery sort of peaks when there are lots of midterm assignments due. So I understand all of that. I think um, we're gonna kind of readjust the mix probably in our advice a little bit, um, doing some more with attendance policies to encourage students to show up if they've selected an in-person uh, delivery mode, um, making sure though that we also preserve the public health uh, requirements so that students stay home when they're sick. So we'll be fine-tuning the basic approach. Um, I think students, some students may need a little bit of more incentive if they've chosen an in-person class to show up in person. We'll try to provide that incentive. But basically, um, if your class mode is asynchronous or synchronous online, that's what you should expect. If it's hybrid, that's what you should expect. If it's in-person, that's what you should expect. So we're just trying to give students a portfolio of options from which to choose. And then once students have chosen those, try to set them up for success the best way we can. I think that's that's try where we're trying to steer. Mm -hmm. So in a town hall last week, Provost Bill Tate said that there were 36.5% of in-person classes, 24% hybrid, and 35% completely online for the spring semester. This is kind of around the same as it was for the fall semester. How were these percentages broken down? Did faculty get preference first or was there kind of like a minimum that the university needed to hit for in-person classes? Um, it's actually a little bit more in-person than we were for the in-person and hybrid, um, a little bit more than the fall. So um, faculty were given uh, the opportunity to select their preferences just as they were in the fall. Uh, it's important to, for your listeners to remember that about 35 to 40% of our faculty fall into a high risk category for one reason or another. So Provost Tate also made this point, we sort of maxed out. Um, if, if, if you account for faculty risk factors, we've kind of gotten to the maximum of hybrid and in-person classes we can offer without um, really uh, constraining or putting at risk some of our faculty. So uh, faculty were encouraged to adopt hybrid modes. Faculty were encouraged to teach in person. Faculty were encouraged to shift to synchronous modes if appropriate because of a sense from students that those sometimes work better than their asynchronous classes. Uh, personally, I feel that you know faculty members who had good asynchronous classes working delivered those very effectively. But I think for some faculty and for some students, the synchronous mode does work better. 
Yeah. So I know you are a professor in the English department, and you also mentioned that your classes were hybrid. What did that? What did your classes look like this semester, and how did that inform your decision making for the spring? Yeah. So I, I teach uh, film and media studies is really my field, and uh, I teach a film and media history class, which I love. It's my staple class, and I've uh, taught it frequently, so I know exactly how it should go. Uh, and what I did was I moved all of the lecture components of that class to short asynchronous videos. And then I uh, split the class in half, and I met half the class in person on the Tuesday time slot and half the class in person on the Thursday time slot uh, with the idea that we would be having discussion on those days. Uh, and for students who showed up, I think that was great. And my students told me particularly earlier in the semester that they really appreciated that opportunity to have an, uh, a face-to-face -face instruction class. I think... Um, it's been a long semester. This is a pretty tough push uh, for through the fall without a fall break and faculty and students alike are feeling it. So I think we're all dragging a little bit towards the finish line a little bit more than usual. Try to account for that in, in the way I set up assignments and deadlines. Hopefully my students agree. <laughs> Email me class if, 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 if I've got this wrong. But uh, I, I think I'm gonna basically do the same thing in the spring. Um, it's a smaller class. I, I'm, I have an honors class in the spring, so I don't have to split them Tuesday and Thursday, and that'll make it a little bit easier to sync up. But uh, my feeling was that worked worked pretty well. I like the idea of sitting down with students one day a week and having discussion, as opposed to w what I did usually, which was kind of split the class, lecture for half of it, and then discuss for half of it. So we'll see how it goes, but I'm eager to try it again in the spring. I know you kind of touched on it a little bit. How has like student performance been impacted this semester compared to previous semesters when it would be normal? You know, in my class and, and what I'm hearing from other faculty, our grading curves look pretty much like they do in a normal semester. I think a lot of people have, uh, you know, students tell me they have a lot more deadlines, a lot more work. Um, uh, that I, I think that may be true. Um, I had um, in the past, for example, had one weekly quiz. Instead, what I did was have more, f more frequent lower stakes quizzes in response to my lecture videos. And I, I did that in response from, to, to guidance from our Center for Teaching Excellence. But I can imagine if you're a student and you're teaching, you're taking four or five classes and all your professors have adopted that approach, suddenly it seems like you've got a ton more quizzes even though they're mm -hmm. lower stakes. So, you know, I think we, we have to balance that out. I, um, I tried to ease up where I could without com compromising on the quality of the class. I feel pretty confident that um, the students in my class who get A's and B's and C's are learning as much this semester as the students who got A's and B's and C's last fall. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I know that probably it's harder to, to see that if you're a student because you were in the class last fall, but uh, but that's how it looks from my point of view. Yeah, and on the topic of grading, there have been a couple of pass-fail petitions circulating online with mm -hmm. thousands of signatures. Colleges like the University of Virginia have reversed its decisions to now give the pass-fail option for students. Mm -hmm. USC has explicitly said it will not give that option this semester. Why is that, and do you think it will change? I don't think it will change. Um, one reason is what I just said. When we talk to faculty, we're not seeing a great uh, disparity or difference uh, in our, our grading averages, really. Um, so it's hard to say that students overall have been 
put in a tougher position than they were in a regular semester, although we get it's more stressful. We think we kind of handled that. Uh, another reason is um, uh, there are all kinds of downstream implications for students that students may not be feeling as keenly right now, but might when they, for example, go to apply to graduate school and the graduate school wants uh, to see a, a certain grade point average or some records of grades. Um, there's going to be allowances for that because of the pandemic, but still, you know, if you're a freshman now, um, six years, five, six years from now, when you're applying for graduate school, the memory of this may have faded and you might want that B or A even that you would have earned in the class rather than the pass. Uh, and then the other thing is scholarship availability, you know, grade point averages matter there too. So the combination of not really seeing an urgent need in terms of student performance and wanting to be careful about what um, pass-fail might mean for students downstream, those are really the main reasons. Uh, in the spring, you know, it totally made sense because we switched modes abruptly in midstream. Um, the faculty senate worked very quickly to extend a pass-fail option. Uh, faculty were totally down with that immediately. This semester feels like we started with, um, you know, a plan in place and everybody's been working to try to execute it. So that's the thinking. Yeah. So the last question that I have for you, finals week is just around the corner. Any mm -hmm. advice for students as they head home for Thanksgiving and may or may not return back to campus for finals? Uh, so first of all, um, get tested, keep grandma and grandpa safe. Uh, make sure you do that. And um you know, take a breather. Uh, try to try to relax over uh, the Thanksgiving break if you can. Um, the fact that we don't have in-person classes uh, after means that, for example, in my class, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a final. It's not gonna be a hard final. Shh, shh, <laughs> not gonna be a hard final. But I'm gonna schedule a review section review session in that last week online, and I, I bet a lot of professors are doing something like that if they're having a final. So catch your breath, uh, gather your forces, do the review, have a happy exam and uh, rest up over the break and then come back strong in January. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Erin. Yeah, that was Keep locked in 90.5. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was Faculty Senate Chair Mark Cooper. Up next, we'll hear from Brady Fitzgerald with sports. We'll be right back. Hey y'all, Jeff Foxworthy here. Now, if you've ever found yourself repeating the same thing over and over for 75 years, you might be Smokey Bear. Only you can prevent wildfires. That's why I'm filling in for Smokey to switch things up, because there's a lot more to say. And I should know, because my grandfather was a firefighter, and one of the things he taught me is that the people that love the outdoors the most are often the ones accidentally starting wildfires. Which means always BYOB. <laughs> no, bring your own bucket to the campfire. And be extra careful with things like burning yard trimmings. Don't just walk away, or chances are you might be starting a wildfire. 
So for the love of the outdoors, go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Okay, class, let's welcome Sarah's dad. He's going to tell us about his job. <laughs> Hi, kids. Uh, raise your hand if your family has a house. Nice. Well, that's part of my job. Do you build houses? What I do is wait until people have problems making their house payments. And then you help them? Well, not really. What I do is I, I tell them I can help them keep their house, and they pay me money. Then I give them a lot of made-up information while I wait for their check to clear. And they get to keep their house? Hey, who likes candy? If you're facing foreclosure, there are a lot of companies promising to help you. All of the information can be really confusing. But who should you trust? The Hope Hotline. The Hope Hotline is a free resource connecting you with HUD-approved housing counseling agencies available 24 hours a day who understand your situation. Since 2007, they've helped over 5 million people get the clarity and information they need. Call the HOPE hotline at 888-995-HOPE. That's 888-995-4673. Brought to you by NeighborWorks America and the Ad Council. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to Local Eyes from WUSC News. I'm Ward Jollis, and Brady Fitzgerald has this sports update. Thank you, Ward. Last Saturday, the Gamecocks shocked the world by only scoring three points against Texas A&M. Rumor was that there was going to be a quarterback change, but based off the practices, Colin Hill has kept his job. But there, if he struggles, there might be a change mid-game. There's also been rumors about the coach's job. I've heard that the $13 million buyout is too much for the team to take, but players have come out all week saying how much they appreciate the coach. But fans and donors are getting fed up by his job. This Saturday, the Gamecocks look to bounce back against Old Miss, but are heavy underdogs. We'll see what happens tomorrow night. Well, that does it for the top sports news in Columbia for this week. Bring it back to you, Ward. Thank you, Brady. And this is Localize. This is WUSC News. The United States reported over 150,000 new cases of COVID-19 on Thursday, with almost 70,000 people currently hospitalized due to the virus. Health experts like Dr. Anthony Fauci are urging Americans to continue following safety guidelines like wearing masks in public and practicing social distancing, especially with the holidays approaching. News that pharmaceutical company Pfizer is getting close to developing a vaccine has many hoping that the end of the pandemic could finally be in sight. But what exactly will it take to prove the vaccine is effective? And how long will it take to reach the average American? Here to talk about all of that is Dr. Miriam Torres. She is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Dr. Torres, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. So my first question for you, Dr. Torres, cases of coronavirus are skyrocketing across the U.S. right now. 
every day it seems like we're beating the record for new infections from the day before. And more people are now hospitalized across the country than ever before. What do you think is going on here and what can we do to stop it? So um, according to the to the experts, um, we are on a third wave um, and, and, and perhaps the most um, uh, the most number of cases and hospitalizations ever. So um, we are in a bad situation. And uh, what, what can we do? I think um, since people are getting tired, uh, people are getting um, not, not doing the, the mitigation um, uh, actions that we should be doing that are extremely simple. Um, but uh, given uh, that's one on the personal base basis. However, um, we all have witnessed um, lots of misinformation. Yeah. And that is uh, a factor that it is affecting the population terribly. Yes. So you say you've been seeing a lot of misinformation. What exactly are you referring to there? So I am referring uh, exactly to what the government is doing um, or perhaps not doing. Um, and it is um, making a political statement of the situation. And, uh, and one of the, the chairs of the task force of um, President-elect Biden uh, said it very wisely, uh, we cannot politicize uh, wearing a mask. It's like politicizing using toilet paper. And that's a, a, a very clear example of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So you say there's a lot of politicization here. I know a lot of health experts have been warning that this third wave was coming for some time now. And with the holidays coming, uh, there's a lot of questions about people spreading it to uh, other places as they travel to see their families. Um, But, you know, a lot of this also with You know, like you said, a lot of politics is involved here. A lot of restrictions have been lifted recently around the country, despite rising um, case numbers. For example, here in Colombia, restaurants are now allowed to operate at full capacity. Um, And but looking at these case numbers every day, a lot of people are saying it's time to shut the country back down, which is a very political decision. What do you think would be the proper step to take here? Is it time to shut the country down again? Um, Yeah, this is a balance, uh, and, and this is a situation where um, we really need to sit down and talk to the experts. Um, and I'm talking about the public health experts. I'm uh, talking about Dr. Fauci's type of people, um, and then uh, people with a, a, the economy knowledge, economies too, and, and sit down and dialogue and see what can be done. But also, I think it's individual responsibility. And we we need to take responsibility as people um, and be sure that have and and look for the information where the places that that it is accurate, that is factual and based on science. because some um, lockdown can happen uh, 
but it might be different if everybody is on the same in the same place yeah uh, making those decisions personal decisions yeah, so I want to shift gears now a little bit to the Pfizer vaccine. Um, you know, it, it's a topic that's made headlines recently for good reason. Uh, earlier this week, for listeners who don't know, the drug company Pfizer announced that their COVID-19 vaccine candidate was 90% effective, although they didn't really give a whole lot of details besides that. Uh, but Dr. Torres, just for clarification, I mean, just how effective is 90% effective when talking about a vaccine? Is that a good number to be at? It's, it's huge. Is huge, and let me tell you, the the flu vaccine, when it is with the strain that it is going around, it is forty to sixty percent effective. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so uh, that's data from the CDC. So um, this is huge. Yeah. Now, I I I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm expecting the next question, or I can, <laughs> um, or, or I can think of some of the answers to that potential question you have in your head. Mm-hmm. Main issue, in my opinion, is misinformation and all the contradictory messages that have gone around this disease, which is very serious. Uh, um, information about the disease not being serious, about it's going to just disappear as a miracle, it it makes people doubt this vaccine. Now, the groups that are anti-vaccine are growing in the United States, are very strong, number one. Number two, Minority populations are very suspicious of any of these vaccines. So now we have perhaps a very highly effective vaccine, but are people going to line up to get it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very good point what you said there. There, you know, you always hear these things about anti-vaxxers and stuff, but it's really, you know, it's this is one of the few times where it's very it's a very pressing issue, especially when there's a global pandemic. Um and you know, like I said, you know, there's a lot of people that are excited about getting this vaccine too, but I think you're right, there's probably an equal number out there that are pretty skeptical. Um and are saying, you know, it's being politicized that you know, one presidential candidate or another is trying to push a vaccine just to get votes. Do you think there's truth behind that? Um, and should we trust the scientific community right now with the first vaccine that gets put out there? Uh, yeah, it has been politicized. And, and, and again, as you mentioned, people may think, huh, this vaccine is was rushed. Uh, what is behind that? Is it safe? Am I going to bring my child who has a condition to, to take the vaccine? So that's, that's the truth. Um, but so what needs to be done? Um, some of the things is have a very clear message that is backed by evidence and be honest with the people so people can feel trust to go and get the vaccine. Yeah. Now, health experts are cautioning that just because this study, 
came out about the vaccine's effectiveness, um, that it's not like it's going to be here by Christmas or anything. <laughs> um, and that right. there are plenty more steps involved in getting this vaccine approved by the FDA and, of course, distributed to the millions of people that need it. Um, but I will say one thing. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar actually said this past week that he thinks that millions of doses of the virus, I mean, not the virus, the vaccine could be ready and available for the elderly and frontline workers by January. And then it could be available to the general public by March or April. I mean, from your own experience, does this seem like a feasible timeline right now? It seems a little bit quick. I know you said it was rushed, but what do you think about this kind of statement? Yeah, it, it is quick, but what I do know is that departments of health are creating those plans already, which I think is a positive thing. And and if the, the plan is followed, uh, it will probably be able to, to have the vaccine. Now, the production, I'm not sure um, about the production, um, but but if those plans are followed, perhaps we are going to do a prioritization of that vaccine, um, like you mentioned, to those groups and then uh, offer it to the public. Um, so it needs to be very um, honest with the people. So people really line up and take it. That's my, and, and, and one thing is minority populations are being affected really highly. Yeah. By the pandemic. Yeah. And now the so these are the populations that, in my opinion, are being more suspicious about that vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Torres, one last question for you. If you had any message that you wanted to give people who are listening right now who maybe you're questioning uh, whether or not that it's safe to go get a vaccine when it is released um, or are thinking that hey, we should trust health experts whenever, even if it does seem a little bit political. What would that one message be to our listeners here um, as this vaccine is getting developed? It's just follow the science. Don't go and, and, and listen to the Facebooks, to the um, uh, Twitters. Uh, go to the CDC. Go uh to the experts and, yeah. and listen. And then, but again, don't forget to pro protect yourself and protect your loved ones. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Twitter and Facebook. I always see a lot. Of <laughs> I see a lot of interesting stuff on social media for sure. Well, that was Dr. Miriam Torres, clinical associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Dr. Torres, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this episode of Localize. Make sure to join us every Friday at 6 p.m. for a local take on this week's biggest stories. Localize is a production by WSC News and is produced by Mary Bryant Charles and Ward Jollis. The outreach coordinator for Localize is Rita Naidu, and the music for the show is called Freedom by Atch. If you want to listen to other new shows and WSC News podcasts, you can find those at garnetmediagroup.org. From Columbia, South Carolina, I'm Ward Jollis. And I'm Erin Slowing.